Good morning, everyone. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Noted evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins has the following to say, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And again, he writes, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. To be a person of faith, Dawkins suggests, is to ignore all of the evidence to the contrary. It's it's to be satisfied with a kind of ignorance about the way the world really is. The question is, does he have a point? Is he right? Now, I want to suggest that Dawkins goes too far. According to his own criteria, his perspective alone is is credible, it's rational, it's believable. But as Tim Keller writes, believers and non-believers in God alike arrive at their positions through a combination of experience, faith, reasoning, and intuition, which is to say everyone has reasons to believe what they do. And so the question becomes not simply what do you believe, but why do you believe it? If we were to take Dawkins' beliefs and subject it to a test, would his understanding of the world make better sense of the complexities we find all around us and the intricacy of human experience? Which worldview is more compelling, the secular one or the Christian one? In the middle of the first century, Peter, who was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, wrote a letter to Christians who had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. This group of Christians was neither large in number nor influential in terms of power. They'd been scattered largely because of persecution. They were living in exile because they'd confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Peter didn't say to these scattered exiles, hide yourself and stay safe. Instead, he says the opposite. Always be prepared, he writes, to give an answer to, uh, to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. What we're going to do over the next four Sundays is we're going to look at uh, a, a, a preaching series that I've entitled Reasons to Believe. What I'm not going to do is pit faith against science, as if these two were mutually exclusive. They're not. Instead, what I want to do is I want to look at some of the human needs and impulses and longings that that all of us experience, and I want to argue that a Christian worldview offers a more comprehensive explanation than a secular one. Some of you love to read. I love to read. And so if you like reading, I want to commend a book to you as a, com- as a companion to this, this preaching series. The book is entitled Making Sense of God. The author is Tim Keller. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to be drawing thoughts and ideas both from the scriptures and from his book that set a secular worldview and a Christian worldview side by side so that we can examine both. If you're a person of faith, then I trust that this series is going to strengthen you in what you already believe and perhaps provide you with opportunities 
to talk with uh, unbelieving friends, family, neighbors. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself as a person of faith, then I trust that this series might give you some things to think about as you consider the world and your own life. So all that I've said so far is meant to be introductory. In just a moment, I'm going to launch into the sermon for this morning. But, I, but before I do, I just want to define a term I've already used a couple times this morning so that you know what I mean when I use it. The term secular can be used in at least three different ways. First, a secular society is one in which there has been a separation between religion and state. In essence, it means that no one religion is preferenced by the state and given power over all the others or over people. So by this definition, Canada is a secular state while Saudi Arabia is not. Second, a secular person is a person who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe in a supernatural realm, and doesn't believe in an afterlife. And third, it follows that a secular age is, is one that is made up of secular people. If there is no God and no afterlife, then all the emphasis in this life needs to be placed on the here and now. Because this is all we get. There's nothing to come. Generally speaking, I support the separation between religion and state. I would much prefer to live in a country where the state doesn't control religion and one particular religion doesn't control the state. All that to say, this series isn't going to address the relationship between the two. Instead, it's these other two meanings that I want to interact with over the next weeks. And so the question for this morning is, how does a secular person or a secular age understand the complexity of human need and longing? And does a secular worldview offer a better explanation of these realities than a Christian one? And this morning, we're going to dive into a need that exists within every human being, the need for meaning and satisfaction. And as we begin, I want to invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a blue Bible right in front of you. I'm going to also have the text behind me on the screen And I'm going to be reading selectively from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. This is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes writes. He says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now, as we Listen to this text. There's a few things that we can notice right away. First of all, the the author is employing a rhetorical device known as merismus. Each pair of opposites is meant to, to communicate the two extremes and everything in between. And in so doing, Ecclesiastes 3 provides us with a kind of quasi comprehensive picture of human experience. 
Old Testament professor Ian Proven writes, the first pair of opposites is the most embracing as far as human life is concerned. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Now, second, it's, it's worth noting that in listing these opposites, the author isn't providing a particularly religious perspective on life. In other words, these opposites don't describe life from a faith perspective. They don't even describe life as God intends it to be. It simply describes the way things are for all of us, whether we're people of faith or not. The second half of verse 3, if you turn your eyes to it, rings true for almost all of us. We live on the North Shore, and so we've become accustomed to construction and the traffic that comes with it. There is a time in every city to tear down and to build, but this observation is true not just of cities, but of human lives and families as well. There comes a time in every life where there are things that need to be built up, There are other times where things in our lives or in our families have gone horribly wrong, and they need to be dismantled. It's just the way life is. In the same way, as we look to verse 4, it describes the way things are for all of us. Weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing are a part of all of our human experience. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die, but what are we meant to do in this in-between period? We're meant to live, obviously, but what do we live for? Where are we to find things like meaning and purpose and satisfaction? Do they exist, and can we grab a hold of them? There's a story told of of two road crews that were sent out to a a rural road to dig a trench um, by hand. The first crew was out there all day under the hot sun, and midway through the afternoon, they were exhausted, and a second crew was brought in to relieve them. The second crew was told that they needed to, to dig a trench four feet deep by 30 feet long. And after they completed the trench, the foreman told the workers to fill it back in. They moved a little bit further down the road and they were once again given the same instructions. Dig a trench four feet deep by 30 feet long and after they completed the task, once again, they were told to fill in the trench. They moved down the road a little bit further. They were given the same instructions and every worker threw down their shovel and refused to dig. And it was then that the foreman realized his, his, his mistake. He hadn't told the crew why they were digging the trench. Just down the road was an orphanage. The foreman was looking for a crack in the water lines. Runoff from, from the nearby cow pasture had contaminated the water. The kids were getting sick. Their job was to find the crack, fix it to protect the children. What a difference it makes in life when we know the why behind all of our activity. Have you ever talked to someone who says, my life feels empty? Of course you have. Maybe sometimes you feel like your life is empty. When a person makes that kind of statement, inevitably they're making a statement about meaning. The person may be intelligent and beautiful. They may be influential and successful. They may have lots of friends and more than enough material comfort and still feel empty because they look at their life and the question they ask is, what purpose does my life serve? 
Am I ultimately accomplishing anything? Does any of this life really matter? Russian author Leo Tolstoy is widely considered one of the greatest authors of all time. And yet at the age of 50, he began to suffer from a crisis of meaning. He knew that the day would come when his books would largely be forgotten and his loved ones would all be claimed one by one by death. And in light of this reality, Tolstoy writes, the question was, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? There's a number of, of, of secular thinkers that would suggest that this crisis of meaning that so many human beings experience could be avoided by one simple move. Stop the search for meaning altogether. There's no ultimate meaning in the universe, they tell us. And so when we stop searching for a meaning that's out there somewhere to make sense of our lives, then we can finally get busy creating and finding whatever meaning we can. And so the strategy becomes to find a meaning that is meaningful to you. And so if your meaning is found in being beautiful or artistic or successful, or athletic, or helping others, then go after it. But for many, many people, this kind of self-creating pursuit rings hollow. I want to talk for a moment about a related matter to meaning, namely satisfaction. When we're young, we assume that when we land the right job, when we acquire enough money, or, or just choose the right partner, then we'll find the satisfaction we seek. The difficulty comes when all of these things become ours, and satisfaction still evades us. Listen to the, to the words of the teacher once again, this time from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. I tried cheering myself with wine. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere, so I came to hate life. Jonathan Haid wrote a a little book called The Happiness Hypothesis, and in it he writes, the author of Ecclesiastes wasn't just battling the fear of meaninglessness, he was battling the disappointment of success. Nothing brought satisfaction. And you and I know this to be true in our lives. It's the law of diminishing returns. We find something that thrills the human heart, but the more we partake of it, the less it satisfies. And over time, our hearts become cold. Tim Keller writes, even as we taste the moment of contentment, we sense how fleeting it is, that it will soon be wrenched from our grasp. It begins to fade away even as we try to embrace it. The ephemeral or fleeting nature of all satisfaction makes us long for something we keep, but we look in vain. Now, I want to make something clear. 
I'm not trying to say that secular people cannot find meaning or satisfaction unless they become Christians. Many secular people can and do find meaning, but there are inherent difficulties in the secular approach. I began this morning asking a question, how does a secular person or a secular age um, uh, understand the complexity of our human needs and longings? This this, this need for meaning and satisfaction is inarguable. It exists in every human being. And the question is, why is it present in humanity at all? How did it get there? Where does it come from? And what purpose does it serve? What's interesting is that evolutionary biology can't provide an answer. A secular worldview can't provide evidence-based answers to our human experience. The best it can do is tell us to ignore our longings, to pretend that they don't exist, or to suggest that there is no meaning in the universe despite the universal human hunger for meaning, and to tell us to settle for a satisfaction, however fleeting it may be. Perhaps there's something missing from a secular worldview that is necessary to all human flourishing. Perhaps the reason we long for something more, something beyond us, is because there is something more and beyond us. Christianity and secularism are fundamentally at odds, especially when it comes to understanding the nature of reality. Secularism is committed to the idea that this world is all there is. And so according to this view, there is no God, there is no afterlife, neither heaven nor hell, and consequently, there's no ultimate meaning or purpose in life. With no God to tell us how to live, life is whatever we want it to be. Life is what we make of it. And while there's more, that, more words I could use to describe how this works, I, I actually want to show you. In 1989, a movie was made that some of you will have seen. The movie was entitled Dead Poets Society. It was released and, and, and went right away to receive popular acclaim. In the movie is featured a high school teacher at an all-boys private school, and he inspires his students to make something of themselves. And he does so from a very secular perspective. I want you to watch the video and listen. Your name. Your name. Seize the day. Carpe diem, in the way that, that Williams uses it, is the quintessence of secularism. Life is what you make of it, and, and, and nothing more. And so get busy and, and create your own meaning. Find what will satisfy you and chase it down. Make something extraordinary of your lives. Now, one of the things that, that's really interesting, and, and perhaps you noticed it, did you notice that every student depicted in the scene was a white, wealthy, privileged person? It's perhaps... Not surprising that secularism tends to flourish in places where, where affluence, unbounded freedom, and individual rights exist. This milieu propagates the illusion of, of self-creation and control. It doesn't fly in most places in the world. 
we may think of ourselves as gods, but we are not nearly as powerful as we imagine. There are things that we cannot stop from beginning and other things that we cannot prevent from ending. The sun rises and sets without our permission. Relationships begin and end often despite our best efforts. We cannot stop time. We cannot prevent death. When relationships break down, when bodies break down, and the losses pile up, this here and now approach to life can't sustain us. It rings hollow. Christian faith offers an alternative explanation of reality. Life is not, first and foremost, something we make, says the Christian. Life is something we receive from God. Ian Proven, Old Testament professor, writes, Carpe diem is an expression of faith, not self-fulfillment. It is rather the patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift from God. And so we're not set loose to create meaning in a meaningless universe. Meaning is found in relationship to God. It isn't our beauty or intelligence or skill that makes life meaningful. It's the fact that we've been made with purpose and God loves us beyond measure. And so as Christians, we are invited to seize the day, but we do so knowing that this world and all of us in it belong to God. When it comes to finding satisfaction, Christians above all people should and often do embrace the tension of the already and the not yet. We recognize that there is a lot to enjoy in this world. There's friendship and family, there's adventure, there's art, there's sport, there's work, there's travel. This is a good and beautiful world, and yet ultimate satisfaction is never found in temporary things. What I want to do right now is just pause for a moment, and I want to invite you to engage in a reflection exercise. I want you to call to mind a moment you've experienced in your life that you might describe as being perfect, a perfect moment. Maybe it was that perfect sunset you saw from the top of the mountain or on a tropical beach. Maybe it was your wedding day or a birthday or that perfect party. Maybe it was a graduation or the day you got your big promotion. I want you to think for a moment and call to mind that perfect moment, okay? Have you got the moment in your mind? What were you feeling at the time this moment took place. And even now, as you think back to that moment, what are you feeling? When we find ourselves in a perfect moment, we want it to last forever don't we? And sometimes, in the middle of such moments, we feel a twinge of sadness knowing that it's not going to last, that even as we embrace it, it's slipping away, the sun sneaking down below the horizon, the party ending, and it's now time for cleanup, or that big promotion that we thought would change everything now just turns out to be a lot of hard work. Some people spend their lives chasing these perfect moments. 
Christians, at least when we're at our best, we know better. Fleeting though those moments may be, Christians recognize these perfect moments as whispers pointing forward to what is yet to come. Lasting satisfaction is coming, says God. The best is still ahead of us. It's not in the rearview mirror. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Fourth-century theologian Augustine of Hippo taught that all of us are fundamentally shaped by what we love. He recognized that not all of the things that we love are created equal. And when we fail to love first things first, our lives begin to fall into disorder, which in turn leads to this, this, this plaguing sense of unhappiness. Tim Keller writes, the ultimate disordered love and the ultimate source of our discontent is the failure to love God supremely. Whether we acknowledge God or not, since we were created for Him, we will always look for the infinite joy we were designed to find in loving communion with the divine. This is the Christian explanation for why we're always searching for meaning, or why no matter how satisfied we are, we always long for more. And so, We bring harm to ourselves and to those around us when we love anything more than we love God. Think about it. When we love our children or our friends or our spouse more than God, then our sense of of security is tied up with their well-being. If they flourish, we flourish. If they are wounded, if they suffer, if they're confused, we end up crushed. When we love our reputation more than we love God, we become obsessed with what everyone around us thinks of us. We're driven to and fro by the expectations of others. And just when we think we've got everyone happy, then one more expectation rises to the service, one that we can't or won't satisfy, and so we can never be at rest. We're never content. When we love our job more than we love God, we constantly need to achieve, to perform, to reach our goals. When we fall short, we're unconsolable. The problem is not that we love things too much. The problem is that we love God too little. When we love God supremely, the rest of our loves are brought into order. They're important, but not ultimate The best this world has to offer is never going to be enough to satisfy our longings. We want more because we were created for more. We were made for God and for a world that is yet to come. As I conclude my message this morning, I I want to return to the question I asked in the beginning. This human longing for meaning and satisfaction is inarguable. It drives every one of us. But why are these longings in us in the first place? And what does that tell us about who we are? Does the secular explanation satisfy and explain? Or does what God says make sense of our experience. I want to invite you just to bow your heads as I pray this morning. I'm going to invite the band up. They're going to lead us in a final song. 
Father, I confess that there's all kinds of things that, that I don't pretend to understand. Things that are, are beyond me, beyond definitive explanation. And yet, every human being knows this deep, inborn desire to live a life of purpose and meaning, to find satisfaction in someone or something. These desires drive us. So as we look at this world and the way we've been made, Father, I want to ask that you would give us wisdom to understand who we are, what this life is about, and how you want to intersect us. Father, we thank you that we are not drifting aimlessly through this life with a birth date and a death date and almost nothing of meaning in between. Because you created us, our lives have intrinsic value. And as we live for you in this life, we anticipate the one that is yet to come. And so, Father, we pray that you would meet us at the place of our questions, that you would comfort us and fill us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.